Hello and welcome to Scopy Radio. My name is Daniel Johansson. And I'm Maureen Smith. And today we are joined by Angela Iannone, Jared McDerris, and Marcy Doherty Else from Theater Red. Hello! Hi! Hello. Good morning! How are you all doing today? Oh my gosh, we're fabulous and even better now that we're here. Oh. Yeah, you know, honestly, no, tr- no, like trek up to Milwaukee would be complete without sitting down with Theater Red. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now we we're just talking about how fun it is to kind of like. I love that we've gotten to kind of trek different chapters of Scoppy through you. Yes. So thank you for like nice. being our vessel for that. We deeply appreciate it. There's also a dog in the There's background. There's a dog there. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for always inviting us to come and talk to you. We always yeah. have so many different things going on. So I think it's been fun to take our journey along with yours mm-hmm. as well. So. Oh my God, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's never this feisty. She's a feisty today. It's because my, it's because, so we're at my mom's house and my mom just left, and so she's distraught. Jeez. Is the world going to now end? <laughs> yeah, probably. Oh, boy. Well, and we brought the cats with us this time. Yeah, our so, cat. there are two cats up in our, in our bedroom upstairs. Yeah, this trip we very badly just wanted to be on vacation as intensely as possible, and I get, like, separation anxiety from my cats. Mm-hmm. Are y'all animals people? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes it's just nice to know they're, like, they're with you, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Cool. Well, let's get right into it. Um, so we want to hear all about your upcoming project. So we have the um, Midwest premiere yes. of a new play in the Edwin Booth play series by Angela. This play is called This Prison Where I Live. And we yeah, we open next week, which is really exciting. Yeah. So yeah, we're, we're here to talk about this new play in her Edwin Booth series and tell you all about that. Cool. Well, and so we've talked a bit Spoiler alert, we talked a bit before recording, and the things that I'm already starting to find very fascinating, um, I love when a project, uh, you you latch on to kind of like the concept and you go like, okay, well, I also need to do extensive research on making this happen, you know, because like I think, mm-hmm. I think playwrights, maybe they have their play trotted out in their head and they don't need to do that back end stuff, but I'm, before we kind of like get into all of the, the production stuff, I'm curious for that, that level, like when you were thinking about this project first, kind of what drew you to the project, and mm-hmm. then what uh, what did you then go, I need to, this is a, this is, I need to spend time researching and spend time looking at fellowships and things like that. Absolutely. So the origin of this project was an assignment that I had uh, on the faculty of UW-Whitewater cool. um, to create a play for the students that would have a large cast, would not require dialect mm-hmm. work, and would be focused on an American historical subject so that we fill an educational checkbox and that we, college casts, you want to provide as much opportunity as possible. And um, specialized work in dialects, yeah, I wanted to steer away from the idea of to be intellectual, we have to work in a British dialect. Um, they're kind of specializing in teaching us about ourselves, and I'm not terrifically interested in that. Um, so I latched on to Edwin Booth, who is the actor to begin with, if you're looking at 19th century America. Um, the 19th century in America is an astonishing period for art and for social movements, and so there are many shameful things happening, but there are also many exciting things happening. And one of the exciting things happening is Edwin Booth's emergence as the celebrity of American theater. He's also around at the beginning of photography. So we have mm-hmm. photographs of him from the time he was around 13 years old at the beginning of his career through to the year before his death in, the, um, in 1893. So what's emerging is not only celebrity through newspaper and through live performances and responses to live performances, but pictures, mm-hmm. photographs, not just engravings or paintings, which always find a way to lie. Right, yeah. But you can look at a photograph of him and you can say, oh, I get it. Yeah. I get it. He's absolutely compelling. Um, The way that his face is arranged perfectly for light, for stage light and for natural light. 
and that his slightly other look, that he's very dark and it's sort of hard to pin him down ethnically, um, that, that he appears so haunted. His life is hung about with tragedy. Of course, you're familiar with his younger brother, John Wilkes, mm-hmm. and his assassination of, right. of the American president, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and there are pictures of Edwin before that happens, and pictures of him just a couple of months after he came out of his self-imposed eight-month retirement. Yeah. Um, and the difference in his face before open and really interesting and vibrant, and then this picture of him about three months after his return oh to gosh. the stage in 1866, where the look in his eyes absolutely makes you want to weep because there's so much in there of knowing and being ashamed and apologizing and yet going, please let me back. Please forgive me. I didn't do this. And it's a Matthew Brady photograph who you may be familiar with as the Civil War photographer. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just absolutely rocks your world that the eyes are so full. And that's an amazing thing that photography does for us that it allows us to capture in a way that a 21st century mind is going, oh, this isn't a painting, this isn't yeah. an engraving, this is a real thing, and I can see the attraction to this celebrity figure in a way that you can't see from anybody you talk about before the advent of photography. That's fascinating, and the par- the 21st, you kind of look like uh, clued into the, like the 21st century parallel, but so much of kind of what we're living through right now, especially with the advent of, I mean, not that video is a new concept, but like the way that we consume video in the Mm -hmm. last few years has Mm -hmm. become so intensely, um, that reality aspect of like what people actually look like and what, how people actually live is, is so deeply involved. Well, the other fascinating thing is that Edwin was such a celebrity that he had some super hardcore fans Mm -hmm. who saw every production of his that they could possibly get themselves to. And what we have are eyewitness accounts, word by word, gesture by gesture, play by play of his entire repertory, that it's like when you sit down and you open these eyewitness accounts, it's like watching a film because they detail so exactly what he was doing to a breath, to an emphasis on a word. And a couple of times they will say, oh, for a series of moving pictures to capture what I am seeing. (laughs) And it's this amazing, they're amazing series of documents about his performances that go word for word, breath for breath, gesture for gesture. That, allow, that allowed me, as a researcher, to say, okay, we're going to lift this particular scene from this play, and we're, I'm going to put it in my play, and we are going to absolutely create, recreate everything that Edwin did. So- and I remember doing that when we did Angela's play The Seeds of Banquo in 2015. Mm-hmm. That takes place during a rehearsal for um, this... Scottish tragedy. The Scottish tragedy. <laughs> and you have seen a copy of the prompt book for that show. Yes. And there is a scene with Edwin as Mac, and I was playing Elizabeth Bowers, who played Lady Mac, and there was a, that particular scene that they were rehearsing in mm-hmm. Angela's play. The gestures, the movement were all recreated through the notes in the prompt book, in Edwin Booth's prompt book. So it was this surreal experience I had back in 2015 Mm -hmm. where that particular scene was directed by Angela, but really directed by Edwin through Angela. And it was really a cool experience that you had access to that information and that amount of detail that dictated where my hand went and how it turned and where the crown was touched. It was just fascinating that that existed and we were able to re- live that moment. Mm-hmm. So Jared, you play Edwin Booth. Yes. So I am dying to hear like how yeah, you know, you're well into the rehearsal period, you know, you open in a week. How has this process been of how has this process first of all just been? And then second of all, how has this process differed from other rehearsals that you've been in where direction is perhaps a little less um 
pre yeah, you can say specific. <laughs> yeah, specific. <laughs> a little less specific. When you say specific, that's well, I'll come back to that in a second. Um, I like, hmm, I enjoy uh, playing historical characters, both because there's, um, you can always, uh, oh yeah, there's um, a wealth of research that you can draw from, and then um, it's, I guess I'll say, uh, avail yeah, available to draw upon. I think art uh, exists like in the gap between um, the physical, um, the, I'll just say document, and then what's happening on stage, uh, whether it be... Um, historical reality versus what's mm -hmm. happening right now. Like, I mean, obviously, I mean, I guess what Edwin Booth did did happen on a stage, but not on our stage. Or, like, you know, um, there's a the thing in the script and then what the person is doing, and then, like, the gap between that is finding... Um, that's where the art is, I guess I'll say. The correct... Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say the correct balance. The balance of the people in the room mm -hmm. that compels the people in the room. Um, the first time... I think it was the first time Angela and I met. It was definitely the first time we spoke was um, after the Milwaukee premiere of Seeds of Banquo. I yes. think that was it. Mm -hmm. uh, it was definitely after a show. And uh, we were talking about differences between um, Chicago acting and Milwaukee acting. And this is obviously very broad generalization, so uh -oh. forgive me if I offend anyone. <laughs> uh, but we were um, mentioning um, a lot of uh, Chicago acting that you see is very uh, visceral, I guess I'll say. Obviously, there's a strong uh, improv scene there, but not just um, improv-influenced. Yeah, um, uh, I'll say visceral and spontaneous, I guess is what I'll say. And um, in Milwaukee, things tend to be, and I guess, no, this is a fine term, uh, more structured, I guess I'll say, um, controlled. More, more ordinum. Yeah. Um, anyway, so like I've said for years, and I'm sure this is an original thought, that like art is a balance between creation and destruction. Like, you know, if you have nothing but creation, then you have a block of marble, and like, who cares? I mean, that's nice, but there it is. And then if you have nothing but destruction, then you just have a bunch of dust on the floor, and it's like, um, I mean, that's nice too, but you know, we can see dust anywhere. So in the middle of art, like, the, um, the statue that you make is in like a balance between creation and destruction, I guess is what I'm gonna say. So anyway, long story short, um, the nifty thing? Yeah. The nifty thing about having the probably premiere, or certainly one of the top five, but probably the number one authority on Edwin Booth in the room with you, is um, research is easier. So, <laughs> I like that part. And, um, yeah, the... Um, uh, vacation? Yeah, vacation from the viscerality of uh, Chicago into the more um, structured... I know that sounds bad. No, it sounds bad, but it shouldn't. The structured well, environment Well, you've contextualized of it, too, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying. Contextualizing yeah, yeah. isn't my strong point, but I've certainly been talking a lot. So anyway... Um, <laughs> refreshingly different, that's what I'll say. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fascinating. I, um... You know, because obviously, so we are both opera people. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. So this whole conversation, the layers in which you're talking about are very relevant to us, especially because um, in Chicago, especially opera companies, especially like DIY companies and underground companies are, are that that's the balance they're dealing with mm -hmm. of where the like in so many ways and especially kind of if we, as we've started to meet a lot more of the people that are theater critics in, in Chicago mm -hmm. and the people that have kind of tracked like theater in Chicago it's fascinating to see how much how much that school of thought that kind of like oh it has to be gritty it has to be real it has to feel like has both set up a like Chicago style but also has set Chicago back in certain ways. And I that's as a person now that's like met a bunch of theater critics and like have heard different takes on this, I feel pretty confident about like saying that that's a thing that in some ways, in some ways has held Chicago back and in some ways has like been really made it really unique. Yeah. And I so I, anyway, I find that super fascinating, but Do you have a Well, here's what I'd like to say about that. So Edwin Booth was considered and nominated and documented as America's foremost naturalistic actor. Sure. As someone who was in the theatrical tradition that he inherited from his father, who was also an actor, smashing away the old acting style, which we in the 21st century might term declamatory, and approaching 
Shakespeare, which was the bulk of his repertory, uh, as naturally as possible. And that word gets tossed around a lot, and it is a word that has been used to beat contemporary actors over the head mm-hmm. and mean um, swinging through the play on emotional handholds only and disregarding the tools that are needed in any performative art, yeah. opera, dance, ballet, and theater, because there are certain jobs that must be done. We have to hear you. We have to understand you. That's a vocal tool. Whether you have a microphone or not, a microphone is only going to amplify what's happening in the mouth. It isn't going to change it. If you're a slurry speaker, you're going to be slurry loud. Yeah. Right? (laughs) So those tools are still the same whether or not you have amplification. We have to understand and support the text physically. You have to breathe it. And you have to use gesture. And non-gesture is an affectation. And it's a 21st century affectation in performance. That if I just stand there and talk, you're going to focus on the emotions. Well, that's not true. In order to understand it from 20 feet away, from 10 feet away, from 5 feet away, I still have to have gesture to support the sentence and the arc of the sentence. I have to ornament the language. I have to breathe. American actors are the worst. We pretend that we don't need to take a breath and we ignore punctuation. And punctuation is how we make sense of a series of words coming at us. A breath, a fall in the energy of the sentence or an uplift with a question, yes? These are vocal cues that we understand as people who use language, and gesture helps us support that. So, and that's a tool, and actors have to be taught to use it, because mm-hmm. too much, and the viewer goes, I don't know what's going on there, and we literally fall into a tiny coma. We shut down. We stop receiving information, and we go, I don't know what's happening there, it's crazy. And then you go, I didn't understand the story of the play. And you can't even tell why. It's because the actors aren't using those tools. We have to understand distances between people. Things that happen on stage are not improvised. In, that's why we have a rehearsal. We set it all up so the audience can understand a physical relationship based on the distance between people. We read those cues really, really well. When we people watch, Mm -hmm. you sit there and go, oh, this couple is trying to pretend that they aren't fighting. But I can see in their body posture that this is weird, (laughs) right? And oh, they're holding hands. Look how they're holding hands. Their fingers are interlaced or they're holding on to a pinky. And we understand these cues. They are universal human behavior. Actors have to be able to use those to communicate the message of the play. So, naturalism, we say, oh, well, that means I'm going to ignore all my tools. No. And then we redefine what's going to be natural for us as observers every 10 years. So you can watch a documentary or a film or a television show from 10 years ago, and the first thing that my young students will say is, that's so fakey. And it's only 10 years old. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Because we've redefined what's natural. Fascinating. One of the things that happens in the 19th century that connects to opera is that the scripts in the 19th century are fully supported by music. That's what melodrama means. Supported by music. Music drama. Every theater in the country had an orchestra. It might have been only six people, but you'd have strings, woodwinds, sometimes piano, sometimes a flute, a breath instrument, and sometimes percussion. And those would be used to underscore, to tell you when a scene was over, curtain music, pre-show music, and it is all the way through doing exactly what commercials and movies do today, feeding an emotion with a sound we recognize and respond to. So we're never performing in silence and simply talking like stone statues. 
We are feeding, supporting, and manipulating the audience through sound, gesture, and the scale of what the audience is watching, which ties into opera. And opera in the United States is beginning in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Right. We're starting to, and musical theater too, the first big musical theater in quotes happens in Edwin's lifetime. It was a play called The Black Crook with a big chorus line of women in tights kicking their legs and Edwin is in competition against these musicals with his Shakespearean productions and he used to call them leg dramas. <laughs> um, so, right, so all of these things that we are thinking about art, they're all starting to blow up in America in the 19th century. This, so here's the thing that I keep kind of like coming back to with so because I we all everybody keeps touching on this thing, which is the idea of um, of how to balance. I've had a balance because mm-hmm. I, I think that mm-hmm. when I think about the Midwest and I think about Milwaukee and, and in some ways when I think about Chicago, I, I find that we, a lot of people that live in the Midwest, maybe there's a, maybe to some it would be like, because there's a delayed reception of like kind of how things are developing in other spaces. If, if you, if you are the type of person, I don't, I'm not personally the type of person, so I don't know entirely. Are we dancing around the word Broadway? Well, I think that if you were a person that like goes coasts first, right? Where they're like, right. oh, the coasts are developing right, right. first. I think that, um, through that, what that provides to Milwaukee, uh, to the Midwest generally is, um, is a bit an ability to kind of take that and balance it with what's come before. And I, I find that really interesting too, talking when you were talking about balancing history and art, you know, and I think that I, what I'm curious for y'all, especially as people that live in Milwaukee, because I actually believe well, that. Well, Jared lives in Chicago. Oh, yes. Right. Oh, great. Third yeah, 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 yeah. Third, yeah, that's great. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's extra cool that he came up to Milwaukee. Yes. Yes. Very much so. Um, but I, I'm kind of curious for that, like, what do, do you think that being um, on the third coast provides, <laughs> like, how does that lens, um, does that lens make this process of, of finding that space in which you want your art to live easier or not? <laughs> um, I can say that the premiere production, the world premiere of this production of this script, this prison where I live, happened in New York off-Broadway. Titan Theater is another theater that has been a champion of mine, and it premiered off-Broadway, and Titan has been marvelous to me, and I love them very much. Um, But getting producers interested in producing my work, for me, has been easier here in Milwaukee. Theater Red has been a champion of mine for a long time Um, and they are interested in this kind of work whereas the push to get anything done in New York on whatever scale Mm -hmm. is enormous Mm -hmm. and the interest in this kind of work in Chicago for me has been non-existent Mm. that their agenda if you could say that they have one is far more blatantly political than my scripts appear to be. Hmm. I, so <laughs> Jared's raising his eyebrows. He may have something to say. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, no, I think that's a fair assessment. Um, I, too, a lot of the plays I write are not um, uh, overtly political in nature. And, I mean, I guess I shouldn't... I mean, obviously, uh, what do you want to call it? Like, I wish I could get my plays produced more, obviously. But I don't know that it's necessarily a... I, I, don't, I don't mean to imply that you were saying this. I don't know it's necessarily a bad thing that plays are, you know, more political than what we write. But likewise, no, I too am, um, have been um, frustrated that sometimes it's not as easy to get my um, um, work out there. But yes, I very much agree that um, the palette in, um, I guess what we call experimental theater or bare bones theater mm-hmm. storefront theater right. is certainly yeah. very um, uh, the entry political point in nature theater. in Chicago yeah. I mean yeah. and I should say Theater Red has produced two of Jared's plays up yeah. here in Milwaukee we had the world premiere of his play was the very first 
play we ever did, A Thousand Times Good Night. That started Theater Red. And we also did the Wisconsin premiere of The Wayward Women. So we've produced yeah. two of his plays up here in Milwaukee as Theater Red. So, and like Angela said, for us as a theater company, we are interested in substantial roles for women, opportunities for women on stage and off. As we've talked about many times, mm -hmm. the word substantial meaning of substance. So not necessarily a female title character or lead, but a female character who is interesting and has her own identity and story that is not dragged along by that of a male protagonist. And we also mean on stage and off. So female playwrights, female directors, you know, um, as many design folks that we can get involved. So just from a whole team perspective. But certainly the other tenant of ours is growth and craft for artists and having that educational arm. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you as an actor who's worked on two of Angela's Edwin Booth plays, it is a masterclass in American theater history and certainly American history in this time. Mm -hmm. So it's fascinating to just work in the rehearsal room with her and talk to her about what's going on with this particular play and this time in history and Edwin's life and about these people. And for this particular production, we are also extending that educational opportunity to the audience. Mm -hmm. So on Friday evenings following every show, we will have a, a talk back so audiences can stay and ask questions of Angela or the cast or anyone from the design team who happens to be there that night. So it's a great chance to explore. And then on Sundays, which is super cool, I think, before the matinees, there is an author pre-show chat so uh, you can come early and talk to Angela directly about her process writing the play or the research or any questions you have about these characters and <clears throat> this play I think um, people are also fascinated I, I mean I hope that there's a much bigger fascination than there was a few years ago with Edwin Booth through the seeds of Banquo and some of the other things Angela has done here um, but I think audiences are also going to be fascinated by the fact that John Wilkes Booth is in this play. Hmm. And I usually avoid him. Yes. Fair. But he is very, very present. He's very present in this, in this play. And in the relationship between Edwin and John Wilkes is explored deeply and it's very interesting. So I think this is a great opportunity for people that have that curiosity when they hear Booth. Come and learn about Edwin Booth, the Booth. Mm -hmm. But also get your curiosity satisfied about the other group, about John Wilkes. Yeah. Because people naturally do ask you about John Wilkes yes. when when they hear that you write about Edwin Booth. Mm -hmm. So part of what we're doing is is hoping to reshape the line of thinking. So when you hear Booth, you think Edwin Booth and John Wilkes is the other Booth. Mm. But you get you get to learn and meet both of them in this play. And I think that that is going to be really interesting for people. Well, and another thing that I find important is that in each of these booth places I've been writing them, I have been introduced to a large number of the female uh, innovators in American theater. Actresses, actor managers, playwrights, um, designers, costumers, lighting people, uh, the way that women shaped American theater and American theater practices and the way that they managed and wrote American theater, it absolutely, this was something I had no idea about. And I came in through Edwin, but he worked with everybody. And so then I get to run off on these little research rabbit holes where I go, oh, here's Mrs. D.P. Bowers, who appeared in The Seeds of Banquo, who is an absolutely fascinating American theatrical figure. And here is Mary McVicker Booth, and here is Mary Devlin Booth, women that Edwin was connected with, Charlotte Cushman, and um, Louisa Lane Drew, and the whole Barrymore family. They are all connected to Edwin Booth. And I get to find out about these women whose names never get mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I get to bring them back, say their names, put them in front of people, tell a little piece of their story as it's connected to Edwin, but also hopefully make people say, I have never heard of this woman, and Google it and have this beautiful photographs, histories, books about them, resources about them come up and they say, oh my God, this particular woman, 
she absolutely was the anchor of Boston theater for 45 years. Mm-hmm. And you go, I always thought that that would be guys. <laughs> in most cities in America, it was women. It was women as actor managers, hiring, firing, building, and writing scripts. Because one of the things that melodrama does is open up a whole new venue for women to write stories about women. And there's a whole new category of play that opens up called the Traveling Women script, where women literally, for the first time in history, dressed as women, step over the threshold of the house and travel. That does not happen in any other play period. Shakespeare's women always have to dress as men to leave. In the Restoration, all of those women in pants, same thing. They have to dress as men in order to step over the threshold of the house and go out and have an adventure. By the time that we hit the 1800s and women are writing the texts, they are writing traveling women stories. Women dressed as women, going out into the world as women, fighting pirates, shooting guns, having sword fights, stopping trains, rescuing people tied from the train tracks, that old trope, right? As women, dressed as women, operating as women, bringing that sensibility of, I must help, I must change the paradigm. Um, I must push back against the patriarchy as women. And that's the first time it happens in playwriting. Because all of a sudden women are going, I can write this play. We need like seven plays in two months because it's going to change just like soap opera. People get tired of this script. We need to put something up next week. And the women go, I can write that. And they do. And then all of a sudden we can make some money in a way that we never could before. And we can shape the narrative about what Americans are. The whole idea of we're going out onto the frontier and we're traveling on a train and we're using a camera. The, one of the first murder mysteries happens because a camera takes a picture of the moment of the murder. And we're like, cool, a camera, fun thing. Let's use it in this play. M amazing cool things happening with understanding how women are shaping the conversation about ourselves as a gender in American society through a play script. Wow, so, it makes your head blow up, yeah. doesn't it? So when you were when you were mentioning like tra traveling women, uh -huh. like I guess archetype of like um, when you were saying cross the threshold into yep. the house, I thought you literally meant like the house of the theater, like it. But then, well, but then I and it purely came from my mind telling me there's no way that there wouldn't have been stories about women literally leaving their homes. But no, there aren't. That's wild. Not unless they're dressed as men. Mm -hmm. um, I so this is a really fascinating thing to me because this this conversation especially, but also kind of like pieces of um, of, of what we've talked about too is I'm interested in kind of this production in the scope of theater red because I know we've had the opportunity to talk so much about mm -hmm. the different uh, about what you've done in the last couple of years. Um, and so I, I'm curious, you know, and you've touched on this already, so I'm more just kind of looking for like an expansion on this, but kind of like, as you were thinking about, uh, as you know, you were pitched or as you pitched or however <laughs> it kind of went down, like, like as you were thinking of, you know, as the person that's also like looking at the long, um, what's sort of looking for a journey of theater red and kind of steering that ship. What, um, what kind of drew you to this project? Well, after we did the Seeds of Banquo, it was such a wonderful collaboration, and so, and I think when, when I was talking about Seeds of Banquo with you, I told you that when Angela approached us and said, hey, would you read my script? Would Theatre Red consider? You could have knocked me over with a feather, because I have such a deep respect and admiration for Angela's work generally, so Ooh, I was so yeah. honored. Um, and, and that collaboration was so wonderful, both from a theater company producer and an actor perspective that and and the feeling was mutual that we just continued the conversation about which play of Angela's can we do next because she had other ones written that just had not been 
mm. produced. So we started talking about actually another one of her plays that is on our radar. Um, we ended up going the direction with this play just due to, you know, the universe factors saying this is the one to do now. But we have another one that she's written that's on our radar, and she's writing two more that are on our radar. So we have quite a long trajectory. Um, like we plan to mm -hmm. stay um, connected to Angela. We were going to hold, we're going to clamp onto her like a barnacle, um, and just you know we're not going to let her go. But we're so interested. You know we want to put new plays on Milwaukee stages, so we're interested in supporting local playwrights, especially an opportunity in our larger mission to provide more opportunities for women, and. The educational aspect that comes along with telling the story of Edwin Booth and, and shaping the, that knowledge in the Milwaukee and beyond theater community about who this person was and his importance is such a great fit. So really just everything Angela does fires on our mission on, on, on all three pillars. So, Well, I'd like to backtrack a little bit and also say that that conversation that Jared mentioned that we had after Seeds of Banquo also sort of made my little ears perk up because as you can hear he has this amazing voice <laughs> i was gonna say we'd like need more actors in the show generally because like everybody's speaking voice is just crystal clear yeah. well he, it's a true beautiful theatrical basso mm -hmm. which is the voice that edwin booth had mm. oh perfect. there is a recording one recording of Edwin Booth speaking. You can find it on YouTube. Cool. Um, it's a little bit scratchy, but um, actual wax cylinder recordings that he did shortly before his death. Um, and there's, a, there's one of just him speaking a little section of Othello, and it is absolutely mind-blowing. And it sounds like the way that he speaks the verse, it could have been recorded yesterday. It does not sound in any way antique or fakey or anything else. It's an incredibly contemporary sounding reading of it. And then the other thing that strikes you is, oh my God, what a gorgeous speaking voice. Incredibly low, incredibly rich, and incredibly resonant. And I'm having this conversation with Jared in the lobby of the theater and I'm going, oh, he needs to play Edwin. <laughs> we need to take advantage of this. And so I'm also plotting, like, ooh, I need to pitch this to Marcy, and we need to involve this person who's incredibly important to Theater Red, and who's also a performer, and also an incredibly intellectual writer, so he's going to get right. how I write plays. Yeah. So it was this resource that I couldn't afford not to mine. Nice. <laughs> Absolutely, I went, ooh, I'm going to grab on all these handholds. <laughs> you also very much resemble Edwin Booth, uh, I think, you know, yes. which is that always starts to happen yeah. too. They, right. The actors always start to look like whoever they are portraying as well, so they get I, closer. I wanted to, to ask you about this in the scope of your writing but I also as like before that thought of this and, and so what I'm gonna I'm oh, gonna remind me to like Edwin Booth Sorry. he does yeah, 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 doesn't yeah. he so right? remind me that I remind me that I wanted to ask you that but okay. first what I'm gonna ask is um, uh, for you be hearing first hearing those things knowing these things knowing that you resemble him and also knowing so much of the conversation that you've things that you've commented on before and, and very thoughtfully the balance of history and art and things like that approaching a role like this one that is so documented and historically like like as a monument like well that, that it is a, for those of us who do that kind of right thing. right right <laughs> but also because i also think about it in the like how important it is to acknowledge the advent of uh of um visual and audio recordings like that's so fascinating that in the history of that is mm -hmm. fascinating to me so there's a lot of to me, if if I'm the person balancing that scale of like historical accuracy and like artistic interpretation, let's say, like there's a lot weighing down the the historical accuracy basket of that balance. So I'm kind of curious for you, where does that kind of play in in your head? And um, do you find yourself teetering one way or the other? Do you have kind of like counterbalances to that? Or uh, well, obviously, with when the uh, director of the production is the <laughs> primary. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Expert. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sort that's of kind of like a shy finger of uh, a, yeah. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Um, it's fairly easy to determine where the scale should fall. Um, mm. But I wouldn't say it's particularly um, 
I guess me personally, I usually go into plays with the assumption of failure. Uh, I played Hamlet twice, and I don't, so I don't need to worry. Like you know, whenever you play uh, or uh, any genre of theater, there are roles or plays where they're so well known, whether it be just from fame because they've been too, done so many times, like uh, well, like Hamlet for example, or musicals. Like there's like one. Um, specific production that's so well known that's the thing that uh, everyone judges it by i was actually watching a youtube video about um about uh, uh robin hood yesterday and the old um 40s i want to say uh, carol flynn yeah yeah um uh, yes. performance of like that's the uh, the show that everyone judges it by and um i suppose that you know you could do a performance of i'll, I'll just say hamlet again for example that's so revolutionary that um everyone's mind is completely woken up and the way they view it is brand new. Like Edwin um, did. Yes, yes Edwin's <laughs> Hamlet was the premier Hamlet. Sorry, I interrupted you. Please. That's a good point. Um, oh, um, Simon Callow wrote a... Uh, Simon Callow is a moderately well-known character actor. You've probably seen him in a couple of movies occasionally. Anyway, he wrote a... Um, uh, what do you call it? A blog, an online article or something uh, a couple years ago about how every few um, years there'll be a new generation, there'll be a specific actor who um, revolutionizes what we call natural acting or realistic acting. Right. Laurence Olivier uh, Brando was the one that, that Simon Callow brought up and how, like, you know, uh, they're like the essence of realism and then like um, um, a few, usually ten years later some will yeah, look back at that. Yeah, my students don't know who he is at all. <clears throat> yeah. Um, what was I saying? Oh, so... Um, uh, so I guess at the risk of sounding particularly pretentious, I don't perform to, you know, make a certain impression or get that level of success. Um, I just do it because I like acting. Mm -hmm. But uh, in this particular production, obviously having, um, if I were uh, someone who was inclined to worry about those things, the source of validation for that is in the room, which makes it much... Um, Easier and more comforting, I guess I would say. What's most interesting about him to you, as you've learnt, like learned about him? I don't think you and I have even had this conversation, even though we live together right now. So, uh, my favorite thing about Edwin Booth was that he was short, because I am too. Um, <laughs> there are certainly other groups of actors who um, suffer more than I do. Um, but, um, like many people, you know, you go to school for acting and then you get out of school and suddenly many of your opportunities dry up. And that's a bit of an exaggeration, but yeah, I had the whole I'm too short thing go on. But anyway, um, what's the other one? Oh, in England, there was also another revolutionary actor, David Garrick, who were interested in naturalism and he was also kind of a short guy. So that's fun. As was Edmund Keane. Hmm. Oh, well, I didn't know that. Yes. I mean, f for me, working on Angela's two of her plays... Um, when we did Seeds of Banquo, I learned an awful lot about Elizabeth Bowers and grew to really respect her. Mm -hmm. and, and I've said before to people that I always learn something about Marcy when I learn about somebody else and portray mm -hmm. an actual historical person. Mm -hmm. um, and, this, and so uh, Mary McVicker Booth, who I play in this production, is very different than Elizabeth Bowers. Yes. And so that's been a lot of fun, getting to know her. And... So, you know, there are things about her that I really find interesting in the process of performing someone's life and things that actually happened to them, feelings they had. Angela has quotes from letters. I mean, some of this stuff, you know, is historically accurate word for word that we are performing. So I was just kind of curious, other than physically how you resemble him, if there's an aspect <laughs> of his you know, what's going on in his life right now that you were finding interesting. Um, uh, I guess, I don't even, I've never asked if this was a historically accurate quote. Uh, the thing that immediately turned me on to Edwin Booth was a quote from The Seeds of Banquo, where he says, uh, lying is not acting, which mm -hmm. was something that, as an actor, I enjoyed greatly. <laughs> but um, if you're looking for a less objectifying appreciation for Edwin Booth, that would be the thing. Well, and I guess, you know, for, for background, because I don't even know that we talked about this at the beginning, but like, this place, this prison where I live. I was literally. So I can do that in two sentences, <laughs> believe it or not. So, you know, usually I'm so long winded. I can do this in two sentences for you. And so I will support this prison where I live, uh, recalls Edwin Booth, who Angela already shared as sort of the first superstar celebrity in the world of theater as he's rehearsing his production of Shakespeare's Richard the second. So as he's readying himself to perform, the ghosts of his past, including that of his notorious brother that we've talked about already, interrupt his rehearsal, 
with their own requests and, as we say, mock the crown of America's prince of players. So that is the two-sentence intrigue to kind of right. let Angela And here's the in. other part of it. The title of the play, This Prison Where I Live, is a quote from mm -hmm. Richard II's famous monologue that happens at the end of Shakespeare's Richard II when Richard is in prison awaiting his execution by the new king, Henry IV. So this prison where I live is referring, he's talking about how do I make sitting in prison bearable. I have to look at the things that are in front of me and give them a value. I have to give being peaceful with my impending death a value. I have to come to a good place with that. And so that's what Richard II is dealing with. The play takes place in 1879. So John Wilkes died in 1865, so there's a good stretch. Um, and Edwin's beloved first wife, Molly Devlin, died in 1863. So these, and his father died in 1852. And the newspaper accounts, the reviews of Edwin, the personal letters, all talk about him being incredibly haunted as a person. That his father, who was a great actor, was always present for him. That his love for his first wife, everyone knew, even though he had married again, that Molly Devlin was the love of his life and his second wife was a convenience. Um, <laughs> it's true. And that his brother was always right there, even though no one was allowed to speak his brother's name in his presence, and he never spoke his brother's name ever again after the events of 1865. So nobody is more hung about with an internal audience than Edwin Booth was, and for anyone observing him, they would have known Oh, this Shakespearean moment is very much like Edwin's own life. It's why they loved his Hamlet. He was Hamlet. He was melancholy. He was hung about with the death of his father. He used to wear a medallion with the image of his father as Hamlet. And everybody in the audience would have been aware when he draws it out and says to Gertrude, look upon this image. They knew that that was a picture of his dad. And so they could have a double ping of performed reality and reality. Is that also true with the signet ring in Mackers? Yes. yes. He would wear his, his father's father. signet ring as a character. And everybody knew, oh, that's Junius Brutus Booth's ring. And so when he's talking what about inheriting, we know. So you get this celebrity mm -hmm. thing of, that's fake, but it's also hyper-real. And so as an audience member, you feel like you know secrets. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about... I'm curious about that method of acting as far as it relates to, like, an actor's self-care. So, like, as a, you know, as a person, Edwin Booth is, as you know, clearly haunted by mm -hmm. the deaths of people in his life who mm -hmm. really meant a lot to him. Mm-hmm. As a person who trains young actors and as someone who has a long career of acting yourself, like, is that type of dredging up and utilization, <laughs> is that, is that like, is that sustainable for okay, acting? Okay, so you bring up an interesting question and now we come into the very strange vocabulary part of naturalism and tools, which I was talking about before. Mm -hmm. And... Edwin Booth never talked about his acting style. He wrote a couple of articles about his father, his father's acting style, um, as compared to his father's great rival, the British actor Edmund Keane. And he, he also wrote commentary for these things called variorums, which are these lovely printed Shakespearean fisticuffs of critics and actors arguing with each other about what this word means and how this line should be performed. They are hysterical. It's like reading the commentary section on anybody's Facebook mm. post. <laughs> and a variorum is just a 
19th century Facebook post with all of these vicious <laughs> commentary in the footnotes. It's nice to hear that's not new. No, it isn't. Yeah. Nothing new under the sun in that respect. And Edwin is clearly an actor who uses tools. And a couple of times there are letters back and forth where he says, I really let this moment take me away and I cried real tears. And my daughter came backstage and said, what was wrong with you? That was a terrible performance. <sighs> Naturalism and realism are not the same thing. Mm. Naturalism is what happens when you use all the tools to convince the audience that what they are seeing is recognizable human behavior in a sequence that makes sense to us. This is the progression, right? Realism is a documentary with a, mm. with a camera or it is an improvised performance which still uses tools but is not rehearsed and structured in the same way mm -hmm. as a performance, a script with a beginning, middle and end and these series of events in which violence and intimacy have to be carefully crafted and I'm not interested in what the performer actually feels because my job as a performer is to be in control of all of the tools and make the audience feel. So I can convince an audience that I'm crying without thinking about my dead grandmother. I should never bring my grandmother into the theater. Yeah. She should not be present unless she's sitting in the back of the audience, right? <laughs> so whatever the audience perceives, that's different than the tools that the actor is using. And the actor should not be using their own emotions. They should be using the emotions that the playwright has crafted for them to use. Which brings up another great point because of your word self-care mm -hmm. and your mention of not only violence, emotion, but intimacy. So Christopher Elst, mm -hmm. the co-founder of Theatre Red and my husband, um, and our production <laughs> stage manager, and our, yeah, but, but he's also serving as the intimacy designer on this show. So in, many people know that he's a certified teacher with the Society of American Fight Directors and, you know, his stage combat, you know, resume is well known in this city. But he's also an intimacy designer and going through the training with that group of folks, the Intimacy Designers International, IDI. And so this particular play, the character of Edwin Booth <clears throat> has moments of intimacy with his former wife, Molly, and his current wife or his second wife, Mary those intimate moments happen between those characters, not between Andrea and Jared and Marcy and Jared. So in the mm -hmm. same way mm -hmm. um, that we think about self-care in a stage combat context, uh, in terms of emotional experiences or feelings that right. uh, are happening on stage for the character, we think about that for intimacy as well. And those moments are discussed and designed and crafted with those tools. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, Jared and I have been friends for 10 years. I've known Jared as long as I've known my husband, Christopher. They're, they're very good friends, they're best of friends. So Jared and Marcy don't have intimacy moments. <laughs> Edwin and Mary have moments of I intense intimacy in this play. So there is a process and there's tools that Christopher works with Jared and Marcy as actors so that when we work that scene, it's Edwin and Mary. And when that scene is over and rehearsal's over, then we go back to Jared and Marcy, which again, in, in the world of self-care and in a modern environment where mm -hmm. um, these intimacy uh, moments in theater mm -hmm. um, can really go off the rails if they're allowed to be realistic. Right. Um, yeah. That's very dangerous. It, mm -hmm. uh, for, speaking of self-care, that can be very, very dangerous. Um, so it's another great uh, sort of thing that we are doing with this particular play is, is bringing that element in there and right. it's, it's kind of a nice well, parallel to your discussion. And I just want to I want to roll back a little bit because I realized I didn't finish telling you what the play was about. <laughs> oh, yeah, I started. So, I 1879, um, Edwin, and this is historical fact, Edwin is um, performing Richard II at the McVicker Theater in Chicago. 
Chicago, Illinois. And uh, he was fired upon from the audience by a crazed fan. And at this particular moment in the play, when he's, ta- when he's doing the This Prison Where I Live monologue, which is at the end of the play in Act 5, at this time in American theater, it was common for the house lights, the lights in the auditorium, to be up. You didn't dim the house ever. Edwin was the first person to do that in his own theater, but it wasn't a popular practice anywhere else in America. You leave the house lights up, why would you turn them down? We aren't doing that thing where we're pretending the audience isn't there. We are conversing with the audience, we are making eye contact, and they are right there. We're not pretending that's a Russian thing. So um, he's performing Richard II, he is on stage, and this is a particular moment where he was sitting on a bench and sat there for a good minute and a half to two minutes before the character of Richard gets up and moves. So this assassination attempt happens in the theater. This crazed fan fires on him, fires two shots that should have killed him because he was just sitting there. But at the moment where the first shot was fired, for some reason, Edwin Booth leaned forward on the bench and stood up. Now, Edwin Booth was infamous for never changing his blocking, ever. Once he got it set, he did it that way for 40 years. He was absolutely predictable in, this is what works, and this is what I'm going to do. He changed his blocking. He stood up, the first bullet whiffed his wig, literally went boom, parted the hair in his wig, and embedded itself in the stage wall behind him. He stood up, and he didn't flinch. He actually looked out into the audience, walked downstage. The second shot was fired. It should have hit him. He's standing there. It went past him and embedded itself into the stage floor, inches from his foot. And he looked up, pointed to the person that was in the balcony firing on him, because he could see him, and went, arrest that man. And then said, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a little break here, and walked off stage. Three men in the balcony seated next to the person who was firing wrestled him to the ground. He fires a third shot into the ceiling of the theater. They pick him up bodily and carry him out. Now, why did Edwin move? He would never talk about it. He would never explain what happened. This play is my explanation of why Edwin Booth moved. Why didn't we talk about this from the beginning? <laughs> so cool! So we got going on so many other things. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, yes, and so it? so you have to come. What see is this also play. Well, I, I do think weirdly this is like the perfect. Yeah, sorry. So what is also true is. Up this uh, in 1879, even slightly before the gun was fired, Edwin was having something of a crisis in his professional life and his personal life. He and his um, second wife had lost a child in 1870, which is what the Seeds of Banquo is about—the loss of that child through the practices of 19th-century childbirth and using forceps on the child and crushing its brain. Uh. Uh, yeah, fun. And um, in 1879, his second wife became pregnant for the second time, and she loses that baby as well. Um, and she's she was also a drug addict. They put her on laudanum to deal with the loss of her child. For two weeks. Well, she was on laudanum right? for the rest of her right, life. Right, but she was very but, heavily yeah, medicated. She lost the baby and woke up two weeks later in a drug haze going, where's my child? And they went, um, not here right now. Let's talk about that later. When in point of fact, Edwin had taken the dead child and had it buried with his first wife. Oh. Wow. Yeah, all kinds of weirdness. So in 1879, she's, his second wife is spiraling into insanity quite quickly and into uh, 
opium addiction even more strongly. Um, he's dealing with that. He's dealing with a crisis in his own confidence and in his own career. Um, newspaper accounts saying he looks like he's sleepwalking through the roles. Where is the fire? Where is the spark? Where is his heart and soul? We're used to seeing that from him and he just looks like he's half dead. After this assassination attempt, for two days he was fine. He was actually really mad. And then he has a complete emotional collapse and spends a week not being able to cross his own threshold. And then when he comes back, he is renewed. The booth flame. The booth flame. As they called it. They talked about it all the time, that he was just on fire all the time. Gets relit for some reason. So what happened in that moment between the bullets firing? Comes what to happened play. to him? Angela will tell you. And so that's what this play is about. What happens in that split second where your life, you're looking your death in the face. And then for some reason, you have a respite. And you say, what can I do with the new time that I have? Well, well, we are. We've gone over. I'm sure nobody minds. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I do have to say one thing though that I didn't get in because we're not done. Because in all of our talks, we talk about Wendy's, and oh, I coincidentally. Oh right, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. We have to go we, back to Wendy's. We had Wendy's just yesterday, and I was like, "Well, this is fitting because we're going to see the Scoppy folks." And I always somehow Wendy's comes up. So I was telling Angela about this. I'm like, just so you know, when Wendy's comes up, and she had a very fun Wendy's fact that I thought, okay, Wendy's, I know you've seen that we've tagged you, you've been you, listening to us. Yeah. We this, always tag Wendy's. We well, do. Wendy's, here's the thing you need to listen up about. <laughs> My mother, Sandra Yannon, was Dave Thomas's executive secretary for many years. And my parents still live in Dublin, Ohio, which is, of course, the international headquarters for Wendy's. My mother met Wendy herself, Wendy Thomas, um, and retains great fondness for her time spent at the international headquarters of Wendy's in Dublin, Ohio, working for Mr. Dave Thomas. So I have a personal connection. We have a personal Love connection, you, Mom. Wendy's. So you know you don't get any more Midwest. You don't get any closer to loving Wendy's. <laughs> so I really think that this this is just the universe putting the cherry on the Sunday for Wendy's and Scoppy and Theater yes. Red. Something's got something's gonna come together. Something. I really yeah. think it is. Something's gotta happen. Yeah. And so hello to Wendy's shoot us an email. Do you have an email that do you have a specific Wendy's email that you would give to Wendy's? And oh, I'm sure there's something on their corporate. Well, website. you know. For Theater Red, you mean? Like, reach out to us? Wendy's email here at theaterred.com. Wendy's support Theater Red. Right. Because Wendy is a redhead, too. Just like me. Yeah, so I just think this is... It's written in the stars. It's written in the stars. Yeah. Yeah, so... Maybe they could have a Scoppy burger, you know, too. Absolutely. It would have to be a vegan burger, though. that would be awesome. I'm all for that. I will say... for Wendy's to make that jump. Wendy's, look into White Castle's Impossible Burgers in different cities. Like, they do super well, at least with me. I know I buy at least 10 of them a day, probably. That's not true. Not true. I'm being purposefully... Exaggerative. Anyway, uh, cool. Do check that out. Yeah. So anyway, sorry. It's not complete unless we, you know, talk unless about we talk Wendy's. about, Wendy's. about Wendy's, so. Yeah. Reach out to us too, Wendy's. Yeah. We'll, we would gladly take a... I love your French fries. Mm. Yeah. They are quite excellent. On that note, <laughs> the last thing that we do with all of our guests is a one minute plug for anything that you have upcoming. Sometimes it's very obvious, like a play that is opening next weekend. But we also love hearing self-care things, you know, media you're consuming, whether it be books, movies, TV shows, um, and just, you know, anything that you're, or other people who you think are doing good work. Ah, um, I would like to give a special shout out to the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C., from which I just returned as an artist in residence and a short-term research fellow. Thank you, Folger Shakespeare Library and Folger Research Fellowship, 
for all the care you give to super research nerds like myself. Yay! Love that. Oh, hey. Uh, when I'm back in Chicago, I'm a member of the Umrehearsed Shakespeare Company. That's umrehearsedchicago.com. And we're closing our ninth season with Romeo and Juliet in October. So check that out, please. Which Edwin met his second wife, Mary, performing Romeo and Juliet, where he was Romeo and she was Juliet. So there we go. That's a really nice tie. I feel obliged to, um, you know, as the Theater Red representative mentioned, that this prison where I live runs three weeks. So we preview actually on Thursday the 23rd. We run through Sunday, September 9th. And all the information can be found on our website, Facebook page, all that. So uh, please come and check us out and support a, a new play by a local female playwright and get the answer to the question, you know, learn why, why do you think Edwin moved in that moment? Dun dun dun. Like you need like that music that we need the melodrama. Yes. Dun dun dun. Cool. Thank well, you. Thank you all so much for listening. I've been Dale Johansson. I continue to be Maureen Smith. If you want to keep up with what we are up to, there are so many ways you can do that as the dog walks over. Uh, you can find us on, uh, you can find our website, scopymag.com. Did I say that already? No. We, no. It's, uh, that's our website. We post all of our articles and podcast episodes there. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff going up recently, I'm sure. I can't think of anything else on oh, my head. Oh, uh, you should head to our website to check out the latest installment of Kita's Service Sundays, which is a collaboration that we have with Chicago playwright Kita Loney, uh, where she records her poetry. We produce a video in support uh, of that poetry, and our latest one is up as of, as you're listening to this, Sunday. Yes. Well, so this is going up on Monday, right? No, I think this is going up on Tuesday. It doesn't um, matter. Yes. It's up on the site. <laughs> that, and it's on YouTube as well. You can yeah. also find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page that we love and adore called Scopy Magazine. Uh, I mean, what am I saying? Yeah, the Facebook page is called Scopy Magazine. We have a Facebook group called Sounding Board that we love and adore. We also love and adore the Facebook page, but let's be real. We love our community more. Um, <laughs> it's a great space. Uh, we talk a lot about... Art, politics, astrology, etc. Yeah. Uh, you can also find us on social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr under Scopy Mag, spelled the same way as the website. You can also find the podcast, the one you're listening to right now, under Scopy Radio in most podcast places, including iTunes, uh, iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, and Radio Public. And I'm here to talk about the importance of subscribing. Uh, if you head to our website, scopymag.com, and go to our subscribe page, there are a couple ways that you can do that. The first is to sign up for email blasts. This is huge because even though we post across social media platforms, Facebook buries our content. Mm. So if you want to see 100% of what we're doing and not just 30% of it, you should sign up for those email blasts. The next thing you can do is you can become a member. For as little as $5 a month, you can help us keep our lights on and pay our artists. So if you are in a position to do so, it means literally everything. Also, if you are interested in advertising with us, please feel free to reach out to us at scopymag at gmail.com. So give a little give a lot and if you can't give then listen participate and share cool thanks again so much for listening go out and make something yep <laughs>